Deuteronomy chapter 6, and this evening we'll just be reading verses 1 through verse 9. Again, this now to the reading of God's holy word. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His Word. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do once again praise You and thank You for the great gift that Your Word is to us. It is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this uh, passage, this topic this evening, we pray that you would give us uh, understanding and insight to be able to apply this truth here, to apply it in our own lives and even in our own families as we seek to uh, train up our children in the way that they should go and teach them and instruct them as you have called us uh, to do. And so we just pray, Father, that your uh, blessing would be upon your word this evening. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, during our communion seasons, we've been considering some of the uh, the basics of the Christian life, uh, th- the just important doctrines and uh, practices that the Lord has given and, and has called us to in order that we might grow in our faith, that we might be encouraged, and that we might be a blessing to one another. And of course, ultimately, that we might effectively bring glory, honor, and praise to the name of our great God and Savior. Our topic this evening is one that seeks to uh, encourage us in all these things, but it's not just for us, but also for the next generation, for our children and for our children's children. See, as the world and our society continue in its bold rebellion against God, the importance of passing on the promises of God's covenant and sharing our legacy of faith with the next generation becomes all the more important and necessary. And there are many ways in which we can teach and instruct our children the way that they should go. Indeed, this is, can be done at many different times and places, even as our passage this evening indicates in verse 7, that you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And so we should be diligent to really take every opportunity we can to point our children to Christ 
and to His glorious gospel of grace. But this evening, I want to focus on one particular context where this kind of instruction can take place. Uh, what's often called family devotions, or as we uh, typically refer to it as family worship. And this evening we'll consider the importance of families in the covenant community and the critical role of family worship as an aid, not only to strengthen individuals in their walk with Christ, not only to strengthen families, but ultimately even to strengthen the church. The family that worships together will truly glorify God in all things. Well, if you do a brief scan of of biblical history, it demonstrates this and, and shows how family worship has really been an important part of the lives of the faithful since the very beginning. Now, obviously, the first worship of God was in the garden with the family of Adam and Eve. And for whatever duration of time they had before the fall, we know that they worshipped in perfect communion with God. But of course, Adam and Eve's uh, disobedience and their sin against God disrupted that communion. But then we remember in Genesis 3.15 that God promised that there would be a seed, a seed of the woman would one day rise up and would accomplish redemption and, and bring about reconciliation. And that seed, of course, would be the Lord Jesus Christ, who would suffer and die on the cross uh, for our sins as the once for all perfect sacrifice for us. Well, Adam and Eve, though, passed this promise on to their children, even as we later see righteous Abel worshiping God by offering a blood sacrifice for his sins. And again, this was a picture of the atonement that Jesus would ultimately secure for us. And then a little bit later, we find Noah and his family worshiping God uh, after they uh, get off the ark. In Genesis 8, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every, every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And so we see here that the context for, for worship were either individual or family settings. Well, this continued with the patriarchs. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram was called, he obeyed God's word, and he worshipped God. And again, certainly he demonstrated to his son Isaac the absolute importance of worshipping God in the way that God commanded when he took uh, Isaac to Mount Moriah uh, to sacrifice him there as the Lord had commanded uh, Abram. But of course, remember, the, the Lord intervened and provided the sacrifice, thus sparing Isaac's life. But as you can imagine, for Isaac, how much he learned about worshiping the Lord on that particular day. He knew that God was serious about worship. Isaac, of course, then passed this worship of God down to his sons Jacob and Esau. Now again, Esau ultimately doesn't take heed to his father's instruction. He forsakes the Lord God and becomes a covenant breaker. But Jacob, Jacob carries the mantle of faith and he passes this legacy on to his children. But again, noting that the families were primarily the context for worship. Well, this changed somewhat with Moses. 
Under Moses, God introduces the worship of the covenant community instead of just a single family. Now, obviously, though, we remember that uh, at this time, the covenant community really consisted of one large family. It was all the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes, and their uh, various uh, generations of children. But God had given Moses detailed instructions about how to build the place for worship, which would be the tabernacle, and they would have then a permanent place, well, at least permanent as far as a, a place in their midst to worship wherever they went. It wasn't permanent as far as location, but it was a particular place where the people of God were to worship at the tabernacle. But even as we see from our text in Deuteronomy 6, of course, this being in that same time frame when uh, the people are wandering around the wilderness, we see the importance of family religious instruction. Family worship wasn't done away with, but rather it continued to be emphasized. And so again, here in uh, verses 1 and 2, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments with the Lord, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments, which I command you, you and your sons and your grandson, all the days of your life. And then verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so aside from the corporate public assemblies at the tabernacle, fathers and the heads of households were charged with the responsibility to see that their children are taught the law of God. Now we know from Israel's history that this was sporadic and inconsistent at best. When the parents were faithful, there was kind of a positive ripple effect that began with their children, extended to the families, extended to the entire covenant community, and ultimately the entire nation of Israel itself. But when they weren't faithful, there would be a similar negative ripple effect, even as we discover in the beginning of the book of Judges. In Judges 2, verse 10, another generation arose after them, who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. And so we get gather from this that the previous generation, uh, maybe it was not necessarily them, but maybe it was the, another generation before, but the, the previous generations failed to pass on their legacy of faith. They failed to tell their children about what the Lord had done, how he had delivered them with a mighty hand out of the land of Egypt, and how he had brought them into this promised land and drove out the nations before them. They forgot and they failed to pass that on to their children, that this is the Lord our God, the only God, the true God, the God whom we worship. And of course we know how this ends up in the book of Judges and it begins that cycle uh, that we find throughout the rest of the period of Judges and to some extent continues on through the period of the kings as well. Well, even with the institution of corporate worship, though again, family worship remained in effect. As we see here in Deuteronomy 6, that the chief responsibility for religious training fell to the parents, and especially to the fathers, as the heads of the household. 
And so, for example, Joshua presents the challenge and, and he makes this stand in Joshua 24. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which you fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in the, whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And each father, each household needs to take that stand and commit themselves to teaching and instructing their children. Well, then we come to the New Testament and the New Covenant, which was accomplished in Christ Jesus. And we see, again, the same importance of covenant family worship and instruction. And so Peter reminds the people during his sermon at Pentecost that the covenant promises of God are for believers and their children. He says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and all and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now we also see that this passage ties the new covenant sign of baptism and notes that the blessing it represents are to be given to believers and to their children, even as circumcision had been done with the Old Covenant. The implication, then, is that parents will teach their children about the promises of God and their obligation as members of God's covenant community to believe in the Lord. And so, children, if you've been baptized... Well, then you are members of the church. You're members of God's covenant community, and you have access to many great blessings. The blessings of growing up in a Christian home, of the blessings of receiving the instruction of faith and receiving God's word from your parents. And as we noted before, an appropriate context for that instruction to be carried out is family worship. And we do need to make some clarifications at this point. First, family worship is not corporate worship. Right? Some Christians promote what are called house churches. Right? Basically a family or two or, or more gathered together for worship as, as a church. But this isn't biblical. A family may be a part of a church. A family isn't the church. For many of these groups, there's no accountability, no ordained oversight as God commands in His Word, where we need to have a plurality of elders uh, in a church. A group of Christians meeting together may be a prayer meeting, it might be a Bible study, it might actually be the beginnings of a church, but it isn't rightly called a church without the ordained leadership, and without some measure of accountability. Now, many will point to the churches that Paul mentions in his epistles that met in in people's homes. But again, this isn't the same as what we often hear and see today. In the historical context of the early church, it was dangerous and even illegal at times for Christians to meet publicly. And so they met in homes, in cemeteries. They met in other secluded uh, places in secret. But once the persecution of Christians ended, well, then they were able to meet openly and freely. And we also know that Paul charged Titus to appoint elders in every congregation throughout every city who would have oversight of these churches. Well, the same is true for the house church movement that we hear about in China. Right? It's Again, it's because of persecution that Chinese Christians must meet secretly in houses. And even then, 
there's ordained leadership, although uh, it might be once every couple months when the ordained leadership comes around, but there's ordained leadership that leads and has oversight over the various congregations. Now, in our nation, at least at this point, Christians have the freedom to meet publicly, right? So there's no persecution. And many of these house church groups in our land function without any biblically ordained authority. They're accountable to no one. And some will even perform the sacraments without any authority or biblical warrant to do so. Even our spiritual forefathers, the the Scottish Covenanters, were forced to meet in the fields because of persecutions. But again, they refrained from performing the sacraments until a biblically ordained minister or elder was present among them. And so when the scriptures emphasize family instruction and worship, it doesn't mean independent house churches. But secondly, family, family worship doesn't supersede corporate worship, but it complements it. Right? Corporate worship is the gathering together of God's people for covenant renewal. And this, again, was established with Israel during the time of Moses. And all the members of that covenant community make a commitment to join together each Lord's Day. And this is the command that we have in Hebrews 10, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, or commanded to gather together as the body of Christ. Now, family worship, though, is to instruct our children in the ways of the Lord and to teach them the promises of God as well as their obligation and duties as members of the covenant community. But family worship isn't a replacement for the corporate worship of God with God's people on the Lord's Day. And thirdly, the responsibility of training and instructing of children lies both within the context of the family and also within the church. Now, one shouldn't take the place of the other. And so, for example, Sunday school shouldn't take the place of diligent uh, instruction, uh, uh, t- instructive times of family worship. Remember, Sunday school started as a way to, to uh, reach out to children who were unlearned and who were unchurched. Now today, it's become more of a, more of a tool for children to uh, further gain instruction in God's Word. But Sunday school isn't a replacement for family worship. Too many parents abdicate their responsibility to teach their children the truths about God's Word. And they say, well, they can just get it at Sunday school. No, the family and the church both have a role, but one isn't to substitute for the other. And we see that role even in our uh, baptismal uh, vows when the parents vow to train and instruct the children and there's a, another vow also for the congregation to, re, uh, to support and encourage the parents uh, in that as well. And so they both have a role. Well, how then, though, is family worship to be conducted. What are the elements? Well, first, the reading of God's Word is, is essential. And we see an example of the fruit of this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, where Paul is reminding Timothy of his own childhood. He says, "...and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." And, and it was uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother who instructed Timothy in these because his father was, uh, was a Gentile. 
And so they faithfully instructed Timothy and showed him the way to salvation through that instruction. And we know and trust and believe that the word of God won't return void as we read through the scriptures, even with our own children. Now, as you're reading through the scriptures, uh, the length of passage, of course, is going to depend on the age of the children. Right? You don't want to make family worship a dreaded, boring time. And so quality is certainly much to be preferred than quantity. Though children are able to handle it, certainly quantity isn't so terrible. And as children grow in understanding and skills, they can be more involved so that you can have your children uh, read the passage or, or read a verse uh, around. The reading should be accompanied by some sort of explanation, uh, instruction, or application. Now again, this doesn't have to be a, an expositional sermon on the passage, but again, a lot is going to depend on the age of those involved. And so just a brief explanation of the passage Maybe asking the children about what was read is a good start. And then again, as children uh, get older, you can engage them in asking them more questions. They can ask questions uh, and have a discussion and exhort them and then also encourage one another from, from the Word. This becomes, of course, easier though if you begin early uh, be, that, that, and establish the pattern, it becomes easier as the children get older. Now, some find it helpful, of course, to use a, maybe a devotional book or, or uh, a commentary and to help with the explanation instruction, and that certainly uh, would be helpful. Well, this type of thing can be done even on the Lord's Day. And so family worship on the Lord's Day can take a little bit of a different uh, appearance, asking children about what they learned in Sunday school, what they remember from the sermon, and how these things might apply in their lives. And of course, parents, you need to be mindful that uh, we as parents also need to make application in our own lives in order to be able to teach and to show our children an example. Secondly, another element would be catechizing. Catechizing has been really a a vital part of family worship in our own uh, faith heritage. And by catechizing, I mean using uh, the Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the the Large and the Shorty Catechisms, uh, which are summaries of the doctrines taught in the Scriptures. And again, it's important even for our children to begin building a doctrinal basis upon which they can stand. And we often think the Shorty Catechism is maybe a little bit of a challenge, uh, and so we can use the, uh, the Catechism for Young Children, uh, which is certainly easy. But the Shorty Catechism um, is, is helpful, again, as children get older. And whether you take one question at a time or through a week or mem- and memorize them or just read two or three uh, and discuss them, uh, again, catechizing is the most helpful exercise to help our children begin to understand the breadth of the doctrine that the Scriptures teach. Another element would be singing. Uh, That's also an important element. Children often love to sing, and in fact, children are even able to memorize easier if it's in the form of a song. And of course, then what a blessing it is that our hymnal is a Psalter, a book of Psalms, of the Word of God, so that our children can actually sing and memorize Scripture. It doesn't have to, again, be a whole psalm, perhaps just a verse or two, but it's a great way to improve our praise. And so, for example, think about, you know, we're beginning, have begun using a psalm of the month. It's a great uh, opportunity to work on that psalm during family worship, and per, it's a great way to prepare the children 
and even the adults for corporate worship. And again, even if you can only make a joyful noise, that's fine. The key is we need to set an example for our children. And even if we don't know how to sing or, or read music, if we joyfully sing the tunes and the psalms that we do know, well, our children will catch on both to our practice and to our attitude. And so we can then expand as we go along. Another element would be prayer. And again, prayer is an essential element of family worship. And this, again, teaches children how to, to pray by following the example of their parents. Most pray and give thanks for the food before a meal. And that's again, is good and right. But including prayer in family worship will stre- uh, stress to the children the importance of prayer for the Christian walk. And you think about, what do we pray for? Well, pray for the activities of the day. Ask for the forgiveness of sins. Ask for application of God's Word to your hearts. Pray for family members. Pray for uh, friends. Pray for church members. Pray for the officers of the church. Pray for missionaries. Pray for our nation and its leaders. It's, there really is an endless list of things that we can be praying for uh, and teaching our children to pray for. And again, you don't have to cover them all in one night, uh, but maybe work through a list. Uh, and uh, and praying for different things on different evenings. And again, as children are able, as they get older, uh, I would encourage you to give them opportunity to pray as well. And you may be surprised how soon and really how sincere children are able to pray if they have examples to follow in their parents. Well, then finally, the timing of uh, family worship should be worked out so that all can participate, or as most as possible, can participate and without any time constraints. That is, uh, not having to be in a rush to go and, and do something else. And again, this is going to be different for, for different families, but really a consistent time is best rather than a time that constantly changes uh, by the day. Because Christ, uh, children need to know that it's important to set aside time each day to worship God as a family. But we also need to remember that family worship isn't just for families with children. Right? These guidelines should be used even if you don't have children. Whoever makes up your family, so a, a husband and a wife, and even if you're on your own, read, study, sing, and pray to the Lord. Because again, the family who worships together will truly glorify Him in all things. Then finally, what are the goals of family worship? Family wor- worship sets a pattern for children to appreciate the worship of God. And this can overflow to how they view the corporate worship of God's people. In fact, many use family worship as a time to begin to instruct their children how to kind of sit during church or to behave during uh, the worship service. But also children are given an example of the importance and centrality of God's Word, not just one day of the week, but each and every day. Right again, in our text here, verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. If God and His Word are loved in the home, then it will overflow to other areas. And by this, then your home will then become a lighthouse of the gospel of Christ. And when people enter your home, they will know that Christ truly dwells there. We find a second goal in Proverbs 22, verse 6. 
train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. A family worship is a way to point our children to Christ and that they might profess faith in him for their own salvation. And of course, this is our ultimate uh, hope and desire for our children as we seek to raise them up and train them up in the instruction of the Lord. When our children are baptized, again, we make a commitment and promise to teach and instruct them with the hope that one day they will come to the fullness of knowledge of Jesus Christ and make a public profession of faith. And we must remember that baptism right, doesn't guarantee salvation, nor does even the faithful instruction that we give will not guarantee that it will bring the desire fruit. For that end, we ultimately trust in God's covenant faithfulness and his abounding grace that the hearts of our children will then ultimately be turned to him and and what a glorious thing is it is to be able to say along with what john says in third john uh, verse four i have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth truly this is our hope and desire and there is no greater joy for a christian parent or members of the covenant community of god's people but of course, you need to have this assurance about this great hope for yourself at first before you pass it on to your children. And indeed, you can have this assurance even now when you sincerely in faith turn away from your sin and turn toward God seeking the forgiveness and trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. Truly receive this gift of God's grace yourself. And then pass it on to your children so that they might pass it on to their children and from one generation to the next. Indeed, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ now calls you to do. Indeed, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And may God alone be glorified. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we again praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder and just the important role of family worship and, and what a wonderful practice uh, that when instituted faithfully in, in the home and, uh, and the fruit that it can bear uh, as we look to you and we look to uh, your grace to uh, work in the hearts of our children and our children's children. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be diligent in this, especially, again, today in the world in which we live. Our children daily need to be reminded that they need to be in the Word. They need examples to follow. They need to see that uh, the importance of what we do in a corporate worship is all about. And again, they need that Word, not just one day a week, but each and every day. And so that family worship is a way that we can accomplish these goals and many more. And so we just pray, Father, for our families, for our children, for our grandchildren, and we just pray that you would be with them, that you truly would work your spirit in their own hearts, and that you would draw them to yourself, that they would one day make their public professions of faith and commit themselves to serving you and to passing on this legacy of faith to their own children. But again, we pray, Lord, that we would have this same hope for ourselves as well. And we pray that your spirit would impress these truths upon our own hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. And so we just praise you and thank you for these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.